Coming up next, focus on medical education, part of this month's featured series on ReachMD XM157. In cardiology training, you are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment on medical education. I am your host, Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, and joining me today is Dr. Rick Stauffer. Dr. Stauffer is the Henry A. Foscu Distinguished Professor of Medicine and Cardiology, the Director of Interventional Cardiology, and the Chief of Clinical Cardiology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Dr. Stauffer and his colleagues have edited a book called Cardiovascular Hemodynamics for the Clinician. It was published in 2008 by Blackwell Publishing. Welcome to our show. Well, thank you for having me. So I thought I'd first ask you a little bit about your idea behind editing a book. What type of need did you see for this book, and how did you come about doing it? This book is an outgrowth of some effort approximately 15 years ago when I was a cardiology fellow. Hemodynamic information has not been compiled in one useful reference for many years. And while it doesn't change as rapidly as other fields like coronary syndromes, it does change. And so I thought it would help if we could put all this information together in one easy reference and then provide it to people who are taking care of patients with cardiovascular disease. Can you just describe an overview of what type of subjects are covered in the book? Well, hemodynamics is primarily uh, blood flow and pressures. And so what we've done is given a brief overview of the hydraulic principles behind hemodynamics, but spent the majority of the book talking about specific conditions such as valvular heart disease, cardiomyopathy, acute coronary syndromes, and just showing the use of various hemodynamic information in managing patients with those conditions. So this book is directed towards the specialist, towards the cardiology fellow, and the clinician who is taking care of these type of patients on a day-to-day basis? Right. I think any physician who takes care of these patients would be our intended audience. And that can range from cardiologists and cardiology fellows to internists who are seeing patients, say, for example, with mitral regurgitation in their office, to anesthesiologists who are taking care of these patients in the operating room, and also for trainees at various levels who just want to know more about hemodynamics. Now, how important do you feel it is to teach about hemodynamics? Is it something that is a lost art now in our uh, teaching of fellows and teaching clinicians? Well, it makes me feel old to uh, talk about hemodynamics because it, it really hasn't been in the mainstream for many years. But I do think there's a lot of information there that is relevant in patient care. So, for example, if we're talking about a patient with a cardiomyopathy, there's a lot of emphasis on identifying the ejection fraction, and you can do that via various imaging modalities such as echocardiogram or MRI. But it's also important to know how well the heart is dealing with the impaired function, and and that can be provided by hemodynamics. If we know that the pressure inside the heart is high and the patient's still not generating a good cardiac output, that can be very useful in tailoring medications. And so while the hemodynamic information is not there to displace the imaging and other information, I, I do think it provides important supplemental information. How has the measurements of hemodynamics changed over the years? I go back far enough also that I remember having pieces of paper and by hand drawing out gradients and polymerizing it and then plugging into formulas and using calculators. Is that how it's done still today? Well, we've replaced most of the paper with digital imaging. And so when we're doing a procedure say some type of heart catheterization, the pressures are measured digitally and stored on a computer, and then we can print them out if we want to have a permanent record. But since we have them in digital format, we can do all our measurements using software, which replaces in many ways the tedious 
hand drawings and counting of boxes than you and I did at one time. And also it's nice because since in digital format, you can change sweep speed, you can change the scale, and you can get a very fine-tuned look at the pressures. Now, how do you think fellows are learning this at this point? I know when I was a fellow, by doing that type of thing offline, you had to know the formulas very well. Now the computer spits out a Valveria or a gradient for you. Do you think the fellows are losing the understanding idea of what the hemodynamics are, what the measurements are? Well, that's a good point, and that's part of the motivation for writing the book. It's one thing when, say, in a case of aortic stenosis, the machine prints out a number, a aortic valve area of, say, one centimeter squared. It's another thing to really understand where the machine is getting that information from and what actually it means. And so in the book, we've tried to point out how that is calculated, the potential pitfalls, things you should look for, because since the cardiology fellows are not doing it by hand anymore, there is sort of this lack of connection with the formula and what we don't want them to do is to take the number from the machine without looking at it with a critical mindset. Do you think that this measurement of hemodynamics is still something that should be done routinely, for example, in every cardiac catheterization, or is it being limited now only for certain diseases where knowing these numbers is going to make a difference in care? I think the latter, especially in certain patients, is, is more important. But I think it's a mindset to get good hemodynamics and get them on every patient. So, for example, the patient who comes with a question of coronary artery disease, well, you will not necessarily need a right heart catheterization, but it's important to measure the left ventricular pressure as well. And because occasionally in these patients, you and I have both seen them, the reason they're having angina is not because of fixed coronary obstruction, but because they have an elevated left ventricular filling pressures. And if that's picked up at the time of heart catheterization, then you've done the patient a great service because you've found something you can treat on the other hand, if, if you go in, look at the coronaries and are done, you may have missed an opportunity to treat the patient for what's causing their chest pain. Let's talk a little bit about the role of hemodynamics in evaluating a patient with cardiac dysfunction or with pulmonary hypertension. We now have a lot of non-invasive testing. Uh, ECHO can give us numbers as well. Is the invasive hemodynamics still the gold standard, or are non-invasive imagings close enough? I think that it depends a lot on the patient and the person doing the imaging. So, for example, looking at pulmonary hypertension, I think in many patients, if you get a good acoustic window and a good look at the tricuspid regurgitation jet, you can accurately estimate pulmonary artery pressures. However, in other patients, you may not get as good an estimate as you like, and also in some patients... You not only want to know the pulmonary artery pressure, but you want to know what the wedge pressure is to see if any of the pulmonary hypertension is coming from left ventricular diastolic dysfunction or systolic dysfunction. And in that case, I think the right heart cath will be more useful than an echocardiogram. If you're just joining us, you are listening to a special segment on medical education on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Matt Sorrentino, and I'm speaking to Dr. Rick Stauffer, and we're discussing the use and measurement of hemodynamics in helping to take care of our patients. There was a couple of papers a number of years ago, I think they were entitled The Cult of the Swan-Gantz Catheter. Do you think that there still is a role for right heart catheterization in our CCUs, in our ICUs, in helping to manage patients? That's a great question. And I, th I think there's four or five studies out now, all relatively large and well done, patients in ICUs that showed no benefit to right heart catheterization in terms of survival. And I think that has led a lot of people to question whether right heart catheterization 
is actually beneficial in those patients. Now, I will say a couple caveats. One, I don't think anyone questions the benefit of a right heart catheterization and a cardiac catheterization lab in a patient with valvular heart disease. So I just mentioned that to put that aside. We're talking about a very select group of patients here in an intensive care unit. But the other thing that came out of all those studies was it's not only important the data you get out, but it's important how that data is interpreted. And so when they looked at individuals interpreting the data, there was quite a few errors in reading the pressure tracings. And equally important, there was a wide disparity on how the numbers, the values were treated. So, for example, in the use of a Swan-Gantz or right heart catheter in an ICU setting, someone may have found a wedge pressure of 10 and decided that was fine. Another investigator at another institution may have found a wedge pressure of 10 and treated that with fluids. And so there's a dichotomy not only in interpretation of the numbers, but what actually was triggered by looking at those numbers. Do you think because right heart catheterization is not used quite as much that there's less experience with it, and that's why interpretations vary so much? I think so. I think that's right. And I think there's not enough focus on how to properly interpret the pressure tracings from a right heart catheter. This is a part of our medical education, which we don't really emphasize. And what we find is if if someone is inexperienced and, and not fully trained, if they're teaching the next generation, then it just sort of gets perpetuated. So I, I think experience is important in putting the catheter in. You obviously got to have less vascular complications if you have experienced hands, but it's also important in interpreting the data to have someone who's seen the various artifacts, potential misreadings before, and knows how to avoid those pitfalls. Can you describe the type of patient that you think it would be especially useful to have a wedge pressure or a left ventricular end diastolic pressure to help manage the patient? Well, for example, a patient who's in a cardiac catheterization laboratory, if someone with the question of constrictive pericarditis or restrictive cardiomyopathy Anyone with uh, significant valve disease, such as aortic insufficiency or mitral regurgitation or mitral stenosis, I, I think in many of those patients, hemodynamics are very helpful. The echocardiogram can be very useful at diagnosing any valve disease, but occasionally the left heart and right heart catheterization are just essential also. For example, if you have a patient with mitral stenosis who has a uh, either valvuloplasty or mitral valve replacement, and they remain symptomatic afterwards, it's nice to know the pulmonary artery pressures beforehand and compare them to the pulmonary artery pressures afterwards if you're going to accurately figure out why that patient remains symptomatic. Let's talk a little bit about uh, standard systolic heart failure. I'm sure you've seen many patients, and I know I've seen many patients that clinically look like they're stable, and yet if you get a filling pressure or a wedge pressure, these pressures are still very high. Do you think that that's important information to try to help further manage or optimize that patient? It's always interesting when you see a patient who has normal lung exam and a normal chest x-ray, and then you measure the wedge pressure, and it's 28 or 30. And Yes, I, th I think those are an example of a group of patients that are well compensated. But in many cases, if you can lower the filling pressures, you can increase their exercise tolerance. And this is the thinking right now behind the implantable left atrial pressure recorders or pulmonary artery pressure recorders. And for those who aren't familiar with these, these are small devices which are actually implanted. And the patient telephonically, you can measure their filling pressures without doing any further studies. And is being tested now whether that continuous information is actually useful 
entailing therapy and, more importantly, in making patients feel better and live longer. So these devices are giving pressure measurements, or are they also giving output-type measurements? Well, the ones I'm thinking of give you pressure measurements, and you implant them using a catheter-based technique, and then you can just non-invasively assess the uh, filling pressure. Well, I want to thank Dr. Rick Stouffer for being our guest. We have been discussing his new book that he edited with his colleagues in North Carolina called The Cardiovascular Hemodynamics for the Clinician, published in 2008 by Blackwell Publishing. I am Dr. Matt Sorrentino, and you have been listening to a special segment on medical education on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with the promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or your office. And thank you for listening. Tune in each hour for the ReachMD feature series, Focus on Medical Education. We thank you for listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.